You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead on this Friday. The Fed's number one concern apparently is slaying the inflation dragon. That's what former Fed official Richard Fisher says. Our economist today disagrees and says it's why we'll see another rate hike in less than two weeks. Could that do more harm than good as the bank's turmoil's aftershocks are still being felt? We will debate that, she said. And it comes as the credit crunch is getting real on Main Street. We'll hear from one business owner the challenges he's facing right now. They're very real and how it's impacting his plans, including hiring for the future. Also, we have XPRIZE announcing its next challenge to the smartest minds around the globe. It comes with an $11 million reward. XPRIZE founder Peter Diamandis is here live with the details. We'll ask him about the state of startups as well following the collapse of SVB. Before that, though, it is red today, Dom. Uh, like and your again, dress. Like my dress, but muted. So every, I feel like every day this week we've stood here and said the declines are modest, but there they are. And it's three days in a row for the S&P 500 wow. with marginal declines, to your point. Nothing severe, and that's maybe the reason why stock market volatility is still languishing at lows for the year right now. But overall, the Dow Industrials are just about flat on the session, but still marginally red, down 17 points. It's almost unchanged. The S&P 500, 41.29, the last trade there, just about unchanged as well. The trading range, again, has been fairly tight. Up six points at the highs of the session, down 16 at the lows. So again, kind of towards the middle of that range right now. And the NASDAQ composite, again, flat on the session, but marginally red, 12,058, the last trade for the NASDAQ composite index. A key focus this week has been on the regional bank picture. And it did clarify a little bit with regard to what we saw with regard to deposits. And let me just show you, quarter end to quarter end, this is a sampling of some of the more notable regional banks that have reported. Believe it or not, names like PNC Financial and Key Corp actually showed quarter over quarter deposit gains despite the turmoil that we saw in the regional banking sector over the last quarter. Zion's Bank down about 3.5%. U.S. Bank down about 3.5% as well. Western Alliance, of course, we knew that number down about 11% there. But overall, regional bank bank deposits have shown some sort of stability. And for the most part, many of these regional bank CEOs and CFOs have said that things did remain somewhat stable in the month of March, which is right in the wake of the Silicon Valley and signature bank collapses. Speaking of a bank stock that you want to focus on today, an earnings mover has been Regions Financial. The Alabama-based lender is down about 3% right now, one of the underperformers in the S&P. It came out this morning with earnings that missed analyst estimates, and revenues were roughly in line. It set aside more money for bad loans, but it did beat most analyst estimates when it came to net interest margins and net interest incomes overall. So Regions Financial, a regional bank to watch. And then, of course, the main event, you can argue, is going to be next week on Monday and Tuesday. That's when some of the embattled West Coast regional lenders are going to report. First Republic reports after the bell on Monday. PacWest reports after the bell on Tuesday. And remember, First Republic, Kelly, has lost about 91% of its value over the last year. And then PacWest has lost about two-thirds of its value. So big headlines coming out of those banks Monday and Tuesday. I'll send things back over. Yeah, and Western Alliance, the best performer so far uh, throughout bank earnings season. Dom, thanks. But given the stress still showing up in banks like regions and elsewhere, is the Fed overall being too laissez-faire about the stresses in the banking system and their impact on the real economy? Steve Leisman is here with more. Steve? Kelly, thanks. Yeah, Fed officials have delivered a pretty uniform message all week. Inflation is too high, they say. While they're watching the banking situation, they suggest it's not bad enough to stop hiking. But some key market indicators and even some of the Fed's own reports show the banking situation has yet to return to normal. They raise questions about whether officials are factoring in banks into the outlook 
seriously enough. Uh, here's New York Fed President John Williams from Wednesday. Conditions in the banking sector have stabilized and the bank system is sound and resilient. That may well be true, but here's also a line from the New York Fed's section of the Beige Book. Conditions in finance, they said, quote, deteriorated sharply. Other Fed officials said similar things, and the Beige Book also said similar things. While the overall stock market is higher, the BKS banking index is down again today, 25% below its level before the failure of Silicon Valley Bank. You can see in that chart, not much recovery in that index. The Fed reported yesterday that borrowing from the new bank term fund bank term fund lending program created to help banks in the wake of the SVB failure actually rose in the last week, though it is, you can see there, at least off its highs. Finally, the outlook for the Federal Reserve's funds rate in January, which tells you what's going to happen for the full year, it fell sharply after SVB. It remains pretty depressed, about 100 basis points below where it was and 60 basis points below the Fed's own mark. The Fed, they could have this right. Banking issues may not turn out to be worse than they are, at least already. And the Fed maybe should continue with rate hikes. There are just, Kelly, some key market indicators that aren't convinced everything is back to normal. No, I think that's really important. And Eric Rosengren was tweeting this morning, Steve, saying, you know, the H41 releases say the bank stress is not being relieved quickly, that on March 1st, we only had $4 billion in discount window lending. But as of April 19th, that was $70 billion of that, $74 billion in the bank term lending. So this this is way higher than normal. And to his point, says it likely implies that credit availability pressures are are very much with us. Yeah, uh, normal is zero, Kelly. Let's make right. sure everybody understands the context. Normally, there's not, and and not uh, uh, to correct you here, but you also left out the, the the discount window, right? The discount window is another. I think it's a total of 140 billion that's out there between huh. the discount window and the bank term lending program. And the, the, the first of all, the bank term lending program didn't exist. Discount window is normally, I don't know, around zero. Maybe it's a few, uh, a couple billion dollars in there, but it's not normal to have any takedown of that. So there is still some stress out there. We don't know which banks it's from. Uh, the uh, uh, FDIC still has a $170 billion loan from the Fed to uh, finance the two bridge banks or the bridge banks that are out there. So, uh, and also you look at the stock prices, which I think is instructive. Dom was talking about that. You're hearing about stability, but not back to where we were before. So the, the question becomes for the Fed, what is the economic fallout of that? How serious is that going to be? How much are banks going to retrench? Just not seeing a return to pre-SVB days in any of these indices we're looking at. Absolutely. Steve, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Our Steve Leisman. So as the Fed tries to weigh uh, another rate hike in two weeks, balancing the inflation fight against these signs that the economy and the labor market is slowing, here's what former Dallas Fed President Richard Fisher had to say. It's hard to slay this dragon once it gets out. And I do think that's the principal purpose of a central bank. So 5% inflation, 4% inflation, unacceptable. You have to be moving towards the 2% target. For more, let's bring in Kathy Busjancic. She's Nationwide Mutual's chief economist. And Kevin Mann, who is Henyon and Walsh's president and CIO. He's on set with me. Welcome to you both. Kathy, let me just quickly start with you because I take Richard Fisher's point, but I think everybody would say the only thing the Fed cares about if a banking crisis is, is taking place or a credit crisis is fixing that too. So this one might be kind of on the back burner, but those data show it. It certainly hasn't gone away. Yeah, happy to be with you, Kelly. Um, well, I think the large fallout from this is that even if we don't have a, a banking crisis, we're going to have tightening of lending standards. Um, and that is going to have a meaningful impact on credit availability, as, as you indicated. Um, and that acts as a, an additional break on the economy that, you know, credit is the lubricant that keeps the economy running. 
Um, so I think you know the Fed Reserve really doesn't know how much tighter conditions going to get now because of that. Before, uh, as of Q1, 40% of the banks were already tightening um, lending standards for commercial industrial loans. That would have been indicative of a recession in the past, and it may still be that. And my guess will be the share of banks tightening lending standards goes up quite substantially. Um, that said, you know, inflation it does remain um, elevated and sticky. We look at the super core services number, which strips out housing just below 6%. So it does look like, and the Fed's guiding us towards this, we're going to get one more rate hike. Um, but my sense is they're going to pause for a long period of time to try to assess what, what's happening in the banking system. Yeah, and even earnings, Kevin, are giving us some signals because we've had a bunch of guidance problems. Just to go through them a little bit, Procter & Gamble this morning, uh, they only reaffirmed the full-year outlook. They only have a quarter left. City last week had that huge beat, but they only reaffirmed 2023. Chris Seneca at Wolf says of the 13 companies who have given guidance so far for next quarter, nine of them have been below consensus. Disappointments are everyone from Carnival to Darden, Equifax, F5, Lamb Research, Micron, Netflix, Philip Morris, and Seagate, which reported obviously that huge miss as well. So this is this so far, it's a little early still, but is telling us that the outlook even corporate America is giving, and usually they can't see that far ahead, is looking downbeat. Absolutely, Kelly. And as it stands right now, according to FactSet, Q1 earnings for the S&P 500 are expected to contract by six and a half percent. If that number holds true, it would mark the worst quarterly earnings since the second quarter of 2020 when the pandemic started. Right. So as we look at over two years, the investment opportunities start to jump out at us. Rates, rates should be lower than, yields should be lower than, inflation should be lower than, markets should be higher. But over the course of the next three quarters, things are going to get choppy here as the economy continues to slow, earnings continue to get hit, and lending continues to be depressed. So question, do you then start putting that list together and, and wait for lower entry points, or did, would you be doing anything right now? It, it, trying to time the market, as we know, is an exercise in futility, but I do believe if you start looking at those beaten up sectors, information technology, consumer discretionary, communication services, that really took a hit during 2022, well, they may look very attractive two years from now when the Fed ends, but until then, Look at those more defensive sectors, staples, industrials, or even healthcare, those that pay a good dividend. But they're that expensive. I mean, so what you've summed up is exactly what's happened this year. We've seen people go back into tech. Yes. Now that's maybe running out of steam a little bit, and everything more defensive is already priced for that. So not a lot of people want to be piling in. It may be 25 times earnings if yeah. we think, you know, again, I, like you said, I don't know when the right entry point is, but it's... It's not a perfect sell at this point, I Let guess. me give you a couple examples yeah. of what we like in those areas. Cummins, the large trucking supplier, pays a dividend around 2.6, only trading at a forward multiple of around 12 right now. Oh. Philip Morris, paying over 5.1%, is trading at a multiple of around 16. And then you look in the healthcare space, how about Merck paying 2.6% dividend yield, only trading at a 16 multiple right now. So there are attractively valued good dividend payers with strong balance sheets that should be able to hold up relatively well during a recession. And Kathy, you know, we did get this kind of counter trend data point this morning. With, I think it's the market PMIs, the ones that come out like the flash index, whatever for the U.S. And, and there it's jumping back above 50 and showing firms, you know, trying to raise prices again. Just kind of give us some context around this result, if you can. Yeah, well, I would put a lot more credence, uh, frankly, on, on the ISM uh, readings, both manufacturing and services. Uh, we do get these flash readings, but um, they don't have as, as much of a history and, and really a correlation that we can judge with the overall trend of the economy. 
Um, what we're seeing really from the ISM measures, and, and also if you look at the Philly Fed uh, manufacturing survey that the Federal Reserve publishes, um, is that the manufacturing sector is still contracting. It has been for four or five months. Um, service sector is doing better. And we know that, right? People are still traveling. We're all still traveling and, and sort of catching up a little bit from COVID. Um, but the the good side of the economy is really struggling. And I, I'll just say one other thing. If you look at the breadth of the leading economic indicators, um, the, the subcomponents of that, um, only two of the 10 have increased in the last six months. It's the equity market hmm. and manufacturing new orders for consumer goods. The other eight are declining. Um, so it really does look like this recessionary dynamic is, is, you know, in place and continuing. Quick final question on inflation, because to circle back to what Richard Fisher's point was, this we have to slay the inflation dragon. Is it being slayed? Just give us a little bit of a forward projection there. I've heard other economists say, you know, we could have a three handle by the summer. Do you see that? We don't. Now, if you're looking at consumer prices, uh, CPI reading, we think it's going to be you know 4% by the end of the year. Now, PCE price index will be a little bit lower, um, so closer to 3%. But that really takes us to the end of the year. Um, you know, And keep in mind, it's the core number that the Fed is so focused on right now. Energy food prices can move around a bit, um, but the super core service number is really sticky at this point, even when you exclude it, um, housing. Kevin, I'll give you the final word yes. here as we head into the weekend. Um, I haven't mentioned the debt ceiling. Obviously, we're seeing U.S. credit default swaps pricing. Yep. Biggest problem that we've had uh, since 2012. I mean, I don't think anyone looks at this and goes, yeah, you know, I mean, unless they're waiting for entry points. And uh, I don't know what else there is to say other than this adds to reasons why we're all surprised maybe that the VIX is below 17 right now. Yeah, I would anticipate volatility picking up as we get closer and closer to that debt ceiling deadline. Just remember, since 1960, Congress has met 78 times and either increased the debt ceiling or changed the definition of the debt ceiling. That'll likely happen again. But the economy is slowing. The Fed is even projected year end. It's only going to grow by four tenths of one percent. That's going to give the Fed enough cover to stop raising interest rates. And when that does take place, opportunities will abound in the stock market again. All right, we'll leave it there. Thank you both. Kevin Mon and Kathy Busjancic joining me today. Now, while we always focus on layoffs at big publicly traded companies, and there are plenty today, we'll get more on that later, much of the impact of higher rates and the banking stress is hurting smaller businesses across the country, and they employ the lion's share of our workers. Kate Rogers is here with a closer look. Kate? Kelly, while owners aren't necessarily hearing no from lenders, the environment is certainly shifting on Main Street, and it's weighing on optimism. Take a look. For some businesses on Main Street, the credit crunch is getting real. While capital is still available, getting it is increasingly difficult. Mitchell Sellers runs Iowa Computer Gurus and has been in business for 17 years. It is a tightening um, where banks are asking more questions and it's becoming harder for us to get loans. But I also believe that business development is being stifled because of the interest rate raises. So we aren't expanding in ways that I would want to because I have to pay 6.5% interest on a loan that a year ago I would have paid 3% on. So that is limiting my development and our ability to expand. For sellers, the issue predates the collapse of Silicon Valley and signature banks. Time will tell if the collapses exacerbate the tightening, but it's a trend showing up in the data. 
The most recent NFIB report for the month of March shows a drop in the ability to get a loan. Roth MKM analysts say the figure is unseen outside of or prior to recessions. What's more, recent data from the National Small Business Association shows a third of owners say lending terms are less favorable and more than half are not able to obtain adequate financing. So, Kelly, what does this all mean for small business optimism? Will owners like sellers say they're concerned because despite his success and his business longevity, the idea that he might not be able to access capital in the future is stressful, and it means that he has fears about investment and growth moving ahead, which is never a good thing. Back Re over to you. Remind, give me the granularity about his uh, specific business again, Kate, because that was so interesting. Sure. So he works uh, in computer consulting. So he's had a business for 17 years. He's like, we're profitable, we're growing, and here we are being asked questions that I've never been asked before. It's just gotten so much harder. You know, a simple, what would have been a simple yes, rather, on a loan prior to this has now become yes, but we need X, Y, Z from you. Very different environment. Did he say, I'm sure he doesn't want to, you know, but just out of curiosity, which bank he's dealing with or banks? Sure. Yeah, we didn't we didn't get into names uh, for the specific piece, but smaller community regional type banks this yeah. is what I'm hearing from a lot of small business owners. Others telling me that banks are kind of being less forgiving with repayment schedules on the smaller community and regional uh, level here. Also, increasing lines of credit uh, since the SVB collapse has gotten harder, and some are just concerned about the FDIC deposit cap, the stability of their money, should they be moving it around. So, just so much is swirling out there right now for small business owners. Yeah, and for someone like him, it's not like he started a year ago. I mean, 17 years. That's a a proven track record. Can you imagine for yeah. one of these newer names? Yeah, absolutely. And I think one more important thing for viewers to remember is that this has gotten tough post-pandemic. There's Fed data that kind of show it was much easier to get money in 2020 prior to COVID. Then 2021, about 80% of businesses said that it got harder or they were having more challenges in the lending environment. So this is something that's been going on. And then when you throw into the mix the collapse of these regional banks that so many small business owners rely on, what does that mean for the future? You know, uncertainty aside, just getting money is getting harder and harder for these companies. No, it's great reporting. Kate, thank you for bringing that to us. Really appreciate it. Our Kate thank Rogers you. out west. Coming up, McDonald's, despite everything we've been talking about. Sitting a new all-time high today. Yum! Brands and Chipotle, 52-week highs of their own recently. Why are the restaurants performing so well right now? We'll ask former Darden CEO Clarence Otis after this break. Plus, XPRIZE founder and executive chair Peter Diamandis is here to discuss his latest $11 million competition and to weigh in on the AI mania. And as we head to break, here's a look at the markets, which were more positive this morning. Uh, Dow's down by about 30 last check. Here's week to date, though, where you're still seeing uh, some green. We'll be back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back to The Exchange. Restaurant stocks have been giving investors plenty to chew on. The S&P Restaurant Index up about 7% over the past month. And next week, investors have McDonald's and Chipotle, with, both, with which both report earnings. Chipotle shares have been on a tear, up 30% so far this year. McDonald's and Texas Roadhouse up double digits in the same time frame. Let's get some more insight on the industry now with Clarence Otis. He's the former CEO of Darden Restaurants. Clarence, it's great to see you again. Welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. I'm just trying to figure out when we're talking about, you know, some pressures on the consumer and, you know, are we heading into a recession, inflation, all the rest of it? Why are restaurants suddenly having such a great start to the year? Or is it just a stock market mirage? No, no, no. I think it's real. Restaurants have seen very strong sales growth and really across the industry. 
when you look at casual dining, for example, uh, Black Box and NapTrap uh, reported that same restaurant sales growth for March was up 5%. And that came after a very strong three months prior to that. If you took a look at what Darden reported and what they reported for their brands, as well as for, uh, for the industry. Now that said, uh, traffic is not so strong. And so again, in March, for example, casual dining, same restaurant, traffic was down three and a half percent. So clearly pricing is in that sort of mid to upper single digit percentage growth range. That makes a little more sense to me, obviously, that you'd have, you know, pricing offsetting weaker traffic clearance. What I don't understand, look, I know in the short term investors like that, they like profit margins. But is that really a sustainable trend? Because it feels like we're at the end of the road of being able to pass along price hikes. Well, I think it is. I think when you look at the market leaders in the restaurant industry, they took the opportunity during the pandemic to become much more efficient from a structural perspective. And so they did things like develop and introduce menu items that had stronger margins. They digitized the operation. So all of those things, plus the leverage that get you get, the operating leverage you get from sales growth, really helps offset that what has been mid-single-digit to, again, high-single-digit uh, inflation in labor and in food costs. So I think that all bodes well. Yeah. That said, of course, there's a um, there's been a, a a rebound coming out of the pandemic, and so a burst of pent up demand that will clearly ebb over time, uh, but and will certainly dissipate even more if you think about economic weakness. Right. Right. Let me ask you about this because you have some great granularity and there's one data point in particular as we see Chipotle is the only name in the red today. Again, it's had a great year, but you're saying just something to be aware of is that fast casual check averages are starting to approach those of casual dining value leaders. Tell me a little bit more about that. How, I mean, that must be like a 10 year trend. That it, and we all know how expensive some of the new options at Chipotle are if you get the what is it? The Ajo steak or whatever. I mean, it's almost $20 <laughs> to walk out of there. Well, I think uh, you hit on a, a very important point. And so one of the things that we have been seeing that reflects uh, the environment that we're in is trading down. And you typically see that. So from casual dining into quick service, uh, that trade is really to traditional trick, uh, quick service. I think the fast casual, because that check has really started to be pretty compressed, when you look at casual dining, will benefit a lot less than historically from the trade down. Uh, The stronger players like Chipotle will benefit, but those that aren't as strong as Chipotle, when they're starting to push up against the check averages at the casual dining value leaders, Olive Garden, Texas Roadhouse, they're not going to get that benefit. Yeah. We, you know, I I know you're bullish on McDonald's, uh, on Chipotle. Tell me why Texas Roadhouse and Burger King. I mean, you know, again, I I see the the reporting about the Whopper and I totally respect everything that um, uh, Patrick Doyle did at at Domino's. So we know he's involved now at Burger King. And is that kind of a sleeper here to watch? It is. It is. I think what you're hearing out of Burger King is really some very positive signals. They've done a lot of work to improve their core food offering. And so that is important. They've also done some work on their operation. And so they're faster. And that's also important. So I think you'll see continued strength there. Texas Roadhouse has long been a value leader. 
And so in this kind of environment, you'd expect them to do well. Same thing with Olive Garden. I mean, the report for the first quarter, which they uh, came out of uh, out with last month. So that their first quarter, the most recent quarter, rather, would have been December, January, February. Olive Garden, Longhorn Steakhouse had extraordinarily strong numbers. And so those market leaders that really lean into value will do well. But I think the industry itself uh, will do better than anticipated in a weaker environment. Because the other thing that we've seen is that the pandemic accelerated retirements. Hmm. And yeah, people in their 50s, 60s, even into their 70s, is a, those are, that's a very important uh, age cohort for the full service players, especially. And so they've got more time, more money, and that will be a tailwind that will help offset some of the, the headwind that, that we may see from the economic environment. A fascinating point. Uh, Clarence, love it. Thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Clarence Otis, former CEO of Darden Restaurants. Still to come, sell in May and miss a summer rally. One technician says stick it out until September. Seriously, with all of these headwinds, he'll explain. Plus, is the housing market slowing or growing? The home builders ETF only 10% below its all-time highs. Has it gone too far too fast? We'll take a look at that. And as we head to break, here's the Dow heat map with Procter & Gamble leading the way after its earnings beat and guidance today. Intel, Dow, and Boeing, the worst performers. The index down 32. We're back after this. Welcome back to the exchange. Fractional declines, but this is still significant because we're about to have the Dow and the S&P's worst week since March 10th. That was obviously when the uh, SVB bank collapsed. The Dow right now is down 29 points. The Nasdaq 12,000, the S&P 41.27. Now, the Dow transports are also on track to post back-to-back positive weeks for the first time since February. You can see the group hovering just above its 50-day moving average uh, here on this chart behind me. One-month gain, about 2.5%. Again, this kind of goes counter to some of the other leading indicators moving in the other direction. We're also watching shares of Amazon up 3.5% among the best in the Nasdaq today. This comes for all the wrong reasons, though. It's a similar theme we've seen of late for tech. Whole Foods plan to lay off several hundred corporate employees that appears to be giving parent Amazon a boost. Spokesperson says the cuts translate to less than half a percent of the company's global workforce. And speaking of layoffs, got to talk about Lyft today. Its shares initially popped more than 5% over here on this Wall Street Journal report that it's cutting at least 1,200 jobs, 30% of its corporate workforce. Not, wouldn't imagine that includes any drivers. It's backed out. It turned negative again, though, and it's now only up about 1%. So some cross-currents here to watch as further reporting comes in. Lyft shares are still down 70% over the past year. And Bitcoin, a a near two-week low, hovering back below now 28,000 after being above 30,000 just earlier this week. It's still up about 70% since Jan 1. Let's get to Courtney Reagan now for a CNBC News update. Courtney? Thanks, Kelly. Here is your CNBC News update at this hour. The State Department said at least one American has been killed in Sudan as fighting between the Sudanese army and a rival paramilitary force continues. The department issued a warning against travel to Sudan this week. A U.N. convoy reported over 400 people have been killed since the violence began. 
The Department of Homeland Security will establish a task force to examine how artificial intelligence can be used to protect the country. DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas said AI could potentially be used to better detect fentanyl in shipments to the U.S. And Twitter has dropped labels for state-affiliated and government-funded accounts. President Biden, as well as Russia and China-affiliated media outlets, saw labels removed. The move also dropped controversial labels added to media accounts like NPR earlier this month. NPR previously said it would stop using Twitter following the move. Bye-bye, blue check marks. Kelly, back over to you. Yep. Courtney, thank you very much, Courtney Reagan. Up next, XPRIZE founder Peter Diamandis on his latest $11 million global competition and the role AI will play in that. Stay tuned. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. XPRIZE is out with its next challenge to the smartest minds in tech, and it's to find new ways to detect and suppress wildfires. The competition comes with an $11 million reward, and my next guest says the rise of AI and other tech is presenting unprecedented opportunities. Joining me now is Peter Diamandis, founder and executive chairman of the XPRIZE Foundation. Peter, it's great to see you again. Welcome back. Uh, pleasure to be back on CNBC, Kelly. Good you to see you, too. And, of course, we've had, like, the wettest, rainiest season. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, because but, all the wildfires, I've heard from some people in the startup space who are looking at that. And just as they were hoping to get funding, the wildfires went away mm, for a season, which I, I'm joking. Well, Everyone now knows the seriousness here. They're coming back and they're coming back stronger. You know, we've doubled a uh, number of wildfires uh, in the last 40 years and it's continuing to get worse. And I don't know about you, but I'm sick and tired of this. Uh, you know, the definition of insanity for me is doing something the same way over and over and expecting a different outcome. Mm-hmm. We've got to change the way we are fighting wildfires. I mean, it's billions in damage. It's uh, hundreds of thousands of lives lost. And uh, it's, you know, it's time. You know, we're living in a world of incredible exponential technologies, you know, AI, robotics, drones, 3D printing sensors. And this XPRIZE is challenging innovators around the world to find a fire at inception, at the point of ignition. Oh, wow. If it's, big, if it's bigger than two meters or it's moving, it shouldn't be, put it out fully autonomously within 10 minutes, right? That's the goal here. And uh, we think the technology for that is very definitely possible. Yeah, although be careful, you know, my backyard or during the summer season, you know, we get that fire pit going. I, I actually would like to. So one of the questions about wildfires as well, that, to my understanding, is that a lot of it can come down to the brush clearing beforehand to try to make sure that there's not a lot of tinder there and things like that that become these kind of political hot points. Do you think, and this is what I always appreciate about technology and innovation, could it offer us a way around some of these entrenched political fights by just finding new and different ways of both identifying fires when they break out, treating them? Obviously, we all get heartburn watching you know, the water and the chemicals and everything else, um, and, and even keeping them from spreading or being so severe. Yeah, listen, the... Dealing with extra brush and clearing forests and all of that, you know, forest management is still going to be here. But the challenge is right now we're fighting fires, wildfires, destructive wildfires, the same way we did 50 years ago. And that is what needs to change. So our goal here, this prize, is two parts. One is detection, space-based detection, and other means of detection, as well as, you know, Imagine having a thousand square kilometers, and if there is a fire that's not registered, that is bigger than it should be, that you know it's going to be put out on its own autonomously. And uh, this is a chance to save lives. And and we just announced today. I don't know if you remember Palmer Lucky was the founder yes. of uh, 
of Oculus, and he's now running a multi-billion dollar uh, defense company called Anderil Industries. And he's the first team to register. We had a second team right on the heels of it. And Bromer's prediction is there's no question that technology to you know, make wildfires a thing of the past exists. Hmm. And this competition is going to incentivize teams to, uh, to do just that. That would be amazing. I, I hope they would get all the possible accolades if, if we do this. White House, whatever, whatever is compelling, <laughs> although, uh, you know, profitable well, business. Well, we got $11 million, 11 million in the line. And, you know, yeah. my call today is for teams out there around the world, if you're an innovator, an entrepreneur who wants to make a difference, you know, go to xprize.org and consider registering to form a team. Uh, we expect we'll have hundreds of teams with lots of different approaches coming at solving this. The first time also ever, Kelly, we are inviting people to add to the purse. It's $11 million today. If you want to contribute 10 bucks or 100 bucks, the money goes only to the person that wins the competition. So you're incentivizing someone to solve a problem that hasn't been changed in decades and wow. is getting worse. So go to xprize.org and uh, you know, kick in 100 bucks to the pot. That's a great idea. So let me ask you while we're talking kind of innovation yeah. and, and development, you know, when you watch AI and the rollout of some of these chatbots, the, the, both the promise, the challenges, all the issues, where is your mind going in terms of problems that will now need to be solved? And do you look at this from a fundamentally skeptical point of view or from a position of excitement? So I come, uh, you know, my term that I use, the work that I do with XPRIZE and Singularity is about abundance, that these technologies are going to enable us ultimately to uplift every man, woman, and child. If you think about Google today is the same for the poorest child and the wealthiest child, mm -hmm. AI is going to become our physician. It's going to become our educator, and it's going to level the playing fields. The best educator on the planet is going to be an AI teaching your child based upon their favorite color, sports star, movie star, whatever they want. The best diagnosticians in the world uh, to diagnose you uh, is going to be an AI. You know, there's 7,000 medical journals published every day. I mean, pr um, a medical articles written. I mean, how many have your physician read today, right? And AI will have read all of those. And so AI ultimately is going to demonetize and democratize education and healthcare. Are we going to have challenges? Of course we are. And, um, you know, I'm less concerned about the AI being dystopian or evil. It's more the human application of it. But it's the same thing with any new technology. Yeah, no, uh, and it's, it's funny. Yeah. I sort of similarly, I, lo I kind of look at it the same way. The only question with this one in particular I have that really, really bothers me is this idea of garbage in, garbage out. You know, when, when Wikipedia yeah. is not the most reliable thing and suddenly that's informing these language models, it's kind of multiplying the, that problem. You're 100% right. These large language models are based on consuming all of the information that we humans put out there, right? And it's as good as it gets and as bad as it gets, and it's being trained on that. There's a great book I just finished reading called Scary Smart by Mo Gadot, and he says, you know, we have to be careful about how we interact with each other, how we interact with machines, uh, because as parents of this new, I'll call it life form coming <laughs> online, you know, we're training them, we're teaching them uh, on the information that we put out there. And so it's not some AI, it's us. We're reflecting back on ourselves the corners of the internet, so to speak. No, that's really interesting. I guess the final question, just while you're here, I am curious, as we talk about the startup ecosystem, a lot of the liquidity has vanished because of SVB and some other problems, the economy and so forth. Yeah. How bad is it? Well, listen, uh, money is not flowing free in those golden uh, rivers in, in Silicon Valley as much as they were, but here's the countervailing force. The 
the expense of starting a company is now lower than ever before, right? These uh, AI systems, the large language models and so forth are allowing entrepreneurs to get new companies up and going faster and cheaper than ever before. So will we have a dry spell? I mean, I run a half a billion dollar venture uh, fund, Bold Capital, and we're being very careful with how we use our capital. We're mostly investing in longevity mm. uh, and AI, but, you know, because we have to make that money last. But the good news is uh, today, as an entrepreneur out there, you can start a company to a large degree on sweat labor and the platforms that are available uh, at very low cost. Yeah. So I think we're going to have a lot of innovation, especially in health and education, especially from AI, and hopefully in wildfires as well. I'm tired of wildfires uh, kicking us out of our homes just and killing lives. Let me just, yeah. I just heard, Peter, is this true that nicotine actually is good for longevity? Like, what, no, I'm not talking about cigarettes. I'm, do you know what I'm talking about? Yes. This is like yes, a whole yes, thing? Yes. It, yes. The people the are taking these capsules or whatever? Yeah, nicotine is a, is a neurostimulant, uh, and it's bad when it's principally inhaled. It is addictive. Uh, so, you know, I spend a lot of my time focused on longevity. I do believe that this next 10 years is the decade dur during which we're going to add 10, 20, 30 healthy years in our lives. Mm. It's been in decline because of suicide and because of all kind of COVID, obviously. Yeah. But AI, quantum technology is coming quickly, biotech is going to allow, you know, give us the tools to extend our healthy lifespan. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I'm excited about that, and I want to live and see as much of this incredible future coming our way as well, possible. And you are helping shape it. Uh, we, and you've turned the Dow positive. Listen, look at that. All right, look at that. That's awesome. <laughs> Peter, thanks so much for your time today. A pleasure, Kelly. See you next time. Peter Diamandis with the XPRIZE Foundation. As mentioned, the Dow has erased its losses up half a point right now. Coming up, shares of DR Horton climbing nearly 9% this week after blowout earnings. They're at levels not seen since December of 2021. And I'm Shares Home Construction ETF is at a 52-week high. We'll have more builder earnings to preview next. And don't miss tonight's last call with Brian Sullivan. He'll be sitting down with one person he's never interviewed, his AI self. It all starts tonight at 7 Eastern. Welcome back. Plenty of people are pointing to home builder strength, especially this week, as a sign of economic momentum. But is it really even the best reflection of the overall housing market? Let's ask Diana Olick about that. Hi, Diana. Hi, Kelly. Look, so I'm going to steal the word from the realtor's chief economist who called the current housing market, quote, unique. That's putting it mildly. It came after the monthly existing home sales report that showed sales down in March, both for the month and compared to a year ago. The issue is not so much demand, but supply or lack thereof. And of course, these higher mortgage rates. Inventory, would you believe, is now 41% lower than pre-pandemic levels. With just a 2.6-month supply, six months is considered a balanced market between buyer and seller. Now, the home builders we saw this week, you'd think they'd be stepping up, but they have not been as much as we might like. With single-family permits still down almost 30% from a year ago and single-family starts down 28%. Both did bump up slightly month-to-month, -month, but builders are just still cautious due again to higher mortgage rates. The average on the 30-year fix rose for much of this week. After also rising last week, it's now nearly a half a percentage point higher than it was two weeks ago. That caused a 10% drop in mortgage demand from homebuyers last week. Now, the builders, however, are getting some traction with incentives especially mortgage rate buy-downs. Builder stocks got a boost from DR Horton, the nation's largest builder, reporting this week better-than-expected earnings, with Chairman Donald Horton pointing in the release to builders benefiting from 
the lack of existing home supply. Now, we'll get earnings next week from Pulte and Taylor Morrison Homes, as well as the monthly report on sales of newly built homes for March. So a lot more to look forward to, Kelly. And we know this is real demand that is driving, you know, there's a need for inventory. If the existing market doesn't have it, people will turn to the builders. It's actually such an obvious development. I, I'm sure a lot of people wish they had seen it coming. The only thing I wonder, Diana, about, you know, they're offering lower rates, okay, 5%, whatever they want to call it, um, you know, sometimes to get people in newly built homes. Is that an incentive in a, by, by another name? You know what I mean? Who's eating that cost? Is the builder eating that cost? Is it just kind of getting hidden in the transaction cost for the home buyer? Just curious. Well, so the builder's eating the, the cost up front, and it's saving them, the buyer, a lot of money, at least for the first year. I mean, the buy-downs are not forever. They're usually for a year or two. And then the expectation is that the buyer will then be able to refinance to a lower rate if, of course, rates go lower. But for the builder, it's less than having to actually lower the home price. And that's the big incentive for the builder because they're getting the sale and they have a lot more supply. So interesting to me, this number that builders currently have 30% of the supply of homes for sale out there right now. Historically, it's usually like 9%. Wow. So that just shows you how weak the existing home market sales are versus the new home market because they simply have so much more inventory. That's why they're benefiting. But it's strange that they're just still so nervous about putting more holes in the ground. Yeah, that's a great point, though. I love that data point. Got to get that. Uh, we'll tweet it. Uh, Diana, thanks very much. Good to see you today. Diana Olek. Still ahead, the Dow could snap a four-week winning streak, but one analyst is still seeing bullish signs for stocks, and he's seeing them in the bond market. We'll run through the charts next. Welcome back. The S&P is on pace to close lower for the second week in three. But my next guest says, while May is historically weak for the S&P, if you sell in May and go away, you could miss a summer rally this year. Let's bring in Steve Suttmeyer. He's with Bank of America, their chief equity technician. It's good to see you, Steve. And um, yeah, I mean, no one really wants to be that bullish right now, or maybe they do. And I don't know. But you know what I mean? No one, no one's that excited, I think, about the summer. So what do you see in the charts here? Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me on, Kelly. Um, I think we have a lot of stability for equities. In our last note, we highlighted that the S&P 500 was uh, trending above its 40-week moving average, which has only started the rise, after defending and testing a 200-week moving average last October. So we continue to view the longer-term trend as secularly bullish. And if we continue to build this base that the market's in now, and can and spend more time above the 40-week moving average, that would argue that cyclically the market could be shifting better also. What do you see in kind of when as you watch the 10-year and kind of overlay that with uh, what might be happening going forward in equities? Sure. I mean, I think when you look at, we, we, we like looking at the, um, the uh, spiders versus TLT ratio. And um, we think that the, the S&P and stocks are set up to outperform bonds. Um, they actually did outperform bonds, the S&P actually outperformed bonds all last year. So bonds went down, stocks went down, but stocks outperformed. Right here, right now, we're still in an uptrend for the stocks versus bond ratio and consolidating within a technical pattern called the triangle. When you're in uptrend and trading in the triangle, you usually resolve higher from that pattern, which means that stocks should have another up leg relative to bonds. You know, when I think about what you're saying, I go, I go, okay, but if the charts are right, they're telling us we're not going to have a debt ceiling fight. And wouldn't that be nice? But you know what I mean? There's no way we're going to have a debt ceiling fight and have equities going higher, right? Um, I mean, look, I, 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 we, we, last time we had a, a, a debt cycle, a debt 
crisis with with the ceiling. I believe it was like 2011, and then the market struggled a little bit, but but worked its way higher after that. And it defended moving averages as support, such as the 40 week. So I think we have the turn in trend. And if we're worried about you know selling may and go away, a lot of folks are talking about that. Uh, the seasonal pattern does actually suggest that you, you sell April, you buy back any downside volatility in May, because there is a tendency to get a summer rally. When we look at three-month seasonality, for instance, June through August is the second best three-month period of the year. So you tend to get a summer rally. So the real saying should not be sell in May and go away. It should be buy May, sell July and August, because hmm. we all know what happens after August. You move into the fall where deeper corrections become more likely for equities in terms of seasonality. And you think even this year, there's no reason to question that. So, you know, I, and not to over, you know, do the 2008 comparison, but we had a similar period of quietness and strength kind of late spring, summer, and September was obviously a very different story. So you're not saying that we might, you know, hold, hold on and continue to be that strong. No, I think I think we should. Um, I mean, I, I use moving averages as a guide. And in 2008, the S&P was not above its rising 40-week moving average. In fact, it was falling below a declining 40-week moving average. And in 2008, the S&P had embarked on a trend below its 200-week moving average. So you, you can make a case that in, in 2008, you were in a secular bear market. Hmm. Here at this point, as long as we're above the 200-week moving average on the S&P, uh, we are still in a longer-term uptrend. Hmm. And, wow. and the interruption of that was, was cyclical in nature, not yeah. secular. No, I appreciate it, actually. I'm glad I asked the question because that's very interesting. Steve, thanks for your time today. Yep, thank you very much, Kelly. Steve Suttmeyer with B of A. All right, that does it for The Exchange, everybody. Dom is in the Tyler cam getting ready for Power Lunch. I'll join him on the other side of this break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.